Hello, I'm Elizabeth Errington, and this is Energy Perspectives. One of the key drivers for concerns in the energy sector is the impact of energy prices to vulnerable people in society. In this podcast, we hear about some of the current responses to this challenge from very different organisations, along with academic reflections of these responses. Later, we'll be hearing from a grassroots organisation, Hubup, working with vulnerable people to hear about an innovative scheme that they have developed to make a difference. Firstly, we'll hear from the energy regulator Ofgem about changes in the way that firms will be interacting with vulnerable consumers following a shift to principle-based regulation. If you're interested in research regarding vulnerable energy consumers, you may also want to listen to the podcast on energy justice. So my name is Meghna Tiwari. I, I head up uh, of Gems Retail Markets uh, and Policy team now. And what that means is that um, uh, it discovers the domestic market, including vulnerable consumers, as well as the business market. Um, and so my, my career has always been in regulation. I used to be in financial regulation before this. I've, I've been in Ofgem for the last um, six, seven years now. Yeah, I, th- I see it as um, as a bit of an evolution of, you know, how uh, sort of using the legal framework that we operate under. It might be worth just talking a little bit about our legal frameworks. You know, our statutory duties are quite clear that, you know, in our in sort of executing our responsibility of protecting consumers now and in the future, we have to have regard for interests of those who are disabled or of pensionable age, who have a low income, maybe living in rural areas. That's sort of set out in statute. And, um, you know, so one could sort of view that in, in a very narrow way and say, well, these are the only four categories that one needs to be bothered about. But I often chose to sort of look at this in alongside the evolving market. Um, and the evolving market demonstrated that vulnerability can arise due to a number of factors. Um, and it would be wrong to just view it in, in, in the way of just two or three categories. So, so in 2013, we came out with um, we were the first regulator to publish um, a consumer vulnerability strategy uh, document. And I, I, I feel that it was quite an important landmark moment for us because it set, it set out um, the whole sort of conceptual framework of vulnerability, that it was not just simply a matter of um, you're demonstrating certain personal characteristics and that's what makes you vulnerable, but also that um, vulnerability is very situational, it's circumstantial, um, it, it, the market can cause it, um, and it's, it's really more about the circumstances. So it's not just about my personal characteristics, but the market has to, the market participants have to respond and help me engage in the market uh, whilst noting the circumstances. So that's that's how we sort of moved away from emphasizing the need to look at vulnerable consumers, um, not just in a very sort of, um, um, I'd say sort of setting sort of predefined boundaries, but to have a much more overall view of things, and and that's why this move uh, more and more towards um, in moving away from a box ticking approach. Um, and that was you know in 2013. I think um, I would I would say that the strategy has had a strong impact on on getting energy companies to focus on vulnerability. In any sort of regulatory approach, uh, you know, speaking at a very high level, the way we regulate the market, for instance, how often regulates the market is, 
You've got a rule book. Uh, you get a license as a firm that I'd like to operate in this market. And the rule book tells you what you're supposed to do for the consumer and what you're not supposed to do. Uh, now, the way a rule is, you know, sort of fashioned out, it could be quite prescriptive. So I could, you know, um, uh, in theory, I could say you must only send your bills on on pink paper um, every five days. Uh, that would be extremely uh, prescriptive. Or we could frame it in a way that that's more based on principles, that you must send a bill that clarifies uh, the right information for the customer. And we're sort of allowing for flexibility through the firm to do it in the most efficient way possible. So the emphasis of principles-based regulation is much more on outcomes. And it's sort of, um, it's sort of your... Um, a sort of consequential approach, I would say, which says that you, you must follow the route that's more that's more efficient and does the right thing by the customer. And so sort of framing it more in terms of principles rather than prescribing the, the process and the means and everything. Now, our move towards principles-based regulation is, is I, I wouldn't say it's to say we completely reject prescription. Our, our position has been quite clear that... Um, where prescription is the only way to achieve the right outcomes, we will rely on prescription. So an example of which is the prepayment price cap that's in place right now. It's one of the CMA remedies. Um, but largely our focus is that, you know, looking across the market, uh, across the retail market, with so many operators, with so many different business models, really the the, the the responsibility of the regulator is to set out that here are the positive consumer outcomes we are looking for, and here are the principles under which you need to operate companies. And if you don't, then there will be consequences to that. So that, that's, that's sort of in a nutshell what principles-based regulation really emphasizes on and what, what it's set to achieve. Excellent. Thank you. Um, so now I'm going to ask you um, to be more specific about what the vulnerability principle um, is uh, intended uh, to, to look and feel like in that space. Yeah, it, it is It is my favourite topic right now. So uh, when often sort of set out on its journey of um, relying more on principles, um, I, I should point out that it, it wasn't it wasn't an entirely new thing for us. We, you know, before we set out, before we created what is now called the Future Retail Project, which looks at principles-based regulation, um, we had introduced a principles-based license condition, which is called the Standards of Conduct license condition. Now, it is a conduct-based um, license condition, which, you know, to put it in a nutshell, says suppliers must treat their consumers fairly. And then there's a fairness test that sits behind it, you know, the, the reasonable person test and so on. Um, and, it, you know, we've, so we've had the benefit of looking at how, how we have used the standards of conduct principle uh, to sort of encourage industry to, towards the right behaviors, the right culture change. Um, and when we started the FRR uh, project, uh, I was pretty keen, and and you know, and and so were others like me in Ofchem, to sort of use the opportunity to really emphasise bringing vulnerable consumers front and centre in our rulebook. So really, our vision really was: if you are a firm in this um, in this market, um, or if you're a consumer body, or you are uh, and your average consumer, you open the rulebook. You you should be clear of what you should expect this market to do for you if you are in vulnerable circumstances. And um, 
And so we wanted to sort of use our consumer vulnerability strategies um, definition and its framework into a clear rule within within the standard of conduct rule. And and so what what the vulnerability the proposed vulnerability principle sets out to achieve is that places very clear responsibility on suppliers and says you must a be fully aware of who your vulnerable consumers are. You must be aware of their circumstances. Um, you should be aware of their needs. You should be able to demonstrate that you have the robust processes uh, to, to do the identification aspect. But equally, you should also then be able to achieve the right outcomes for these consumers. So, so to me, uh, it's, it's quite a strong signal, um, this principle, because it is overarching as in, you know, license conditions that sort of um, uh, that go over every other interaction that the supplier has with their uh, current and future consumers. And it, it, it is really, really setting out um, that suppliers have a responsibility towards these consumers. Um, and anybody can be vulnerable in their consumer life cycles. You know, I may be, I may not be a vulnerable consumer right now, but, you know, I may go through certain life changes tomorrow and may be in vulnerable circumstances. So this is really encouraging a culture change in industry and really setting it out clearly for those who are new to this market as market participants, those who are already here, that there is, there is a clear responsibility on you to identify and support uh, and doing identification and support with the, with the objective of achieving what's right for the consumers. I asked Catherine Wadhams, Professor of Regulation at the University of East Anglia, for her thoughts on the shift to principle-based regulation. Yes, I think there are two bits to your question in a sense. One is relating to consumers in general. I think there's a danger that regulated companies relate to the regulator because the regulator controls a large part of the revenue. It's slightly different in energy where there is an element of competition. But one important thing is for companies to be oriented towards their consumers uh, in general. And that will link with vulnerability because vulnerability is a a very wide context and concept. So I think it's easier to consider consumers not who are vulnerable and have a vulnerable tag pinned on them in some way or a label attached to them, but consumers who are in vulnerable circumstances. And it's been estimated that happens, that most of us, uh, in fact, will be in vulnerable situations at some stage in our life. Uh, Bereavement makes people vulnerable in the sense that they're not able to access the system to their best advantage. Um, Receiving a serious health diagnosis can also make you vulnerable, as, of course, can inadequate access to funds, uh, the sort of things we're used to, disability. Um, So there may be some people who are in a vulnerable situation for quite a prolonged time. But even there, uh, they're often likely to go in and out of vulnerability. So what's that got to do with principles-based regulation? Well, I think rules-based regulation means you have to think, the regulator has to think, of all the vulnerable situations that might occur and put on a sort of Uh, a a rule for how every company should deal with that. And that's just not possible. And the the variety uh, of the circumstances that might make any of us vulnerable means that really isn't feasible. 
So principles-based regulation, I think, is a huge opportunity for companies to say, we want to treat consumers who may be in vulnerable situations well. We want to understand their situation. Uh, for example, we may not, the moment that they're late in their payments, threaten to send in the bailiffs. We might try and find out why they're late with their payments. But because companies, quite rightly, in a sense, because we don't want invasion of our privacy, don't always know exactly who's in vulnerable situations, what this boils down to is that they have to treat all their customers well, which seems quite a good thing, really. doesn't mean they have to be soft on people who are not paying their bills. Um, we've seen in the water sector, for example, that the increase in people not paying their bills has increased other people's bills quite substantially, and some of those other people will themselves struggle to pay those bills. So I'm not suggesting that the companies should... Uh, be soft with consumers, but they should be considerate and they should have systems in place that treat them well, uh, partly because they might be vulnerable, but partly because one hopes that would be part of good consumer service. Defining what good consumer service is, I think, is just impossible. And if you say you have to do certain steps, then there's a danger that the companies will do those steps and no more, or will do them in a way that isn't really helpful to the consumer. So I think principles-based regulation in which you're saying it'll be clear after the event whether you have treated people well is a really good way forward for regulators. And oddly enough, it brings regulation more into line with competition. So in competition policy, you don't, set in regulation you set a price in advance in competition policy you don't set a price in advance but you say if you are exploiting monopoly power for example we are going to then come to you and we're going to after the event say that wasn't a good way to behave but we're not going to lay down exactly how your price should relate to your costs that's that's what regulation does and if you come onto principles-based regulation, I think, again, you're laying down principles. You're saying this is the sort of way you should behave. And if you don't, then we will uh, investigate you and perhaps fine you, punish you afterwards. Uh, but it seems to me then it makes the company engage much more with what is the object of this sort of behavior rather than mechanically doing it. And I think should deliver much better behavior and much better relationship, more importantly, between the companies and their consumers. So, so for us, the vision of this market is very much, uh, if I was to describe it in a single word, for me, it means a much more inclusive market. It's inclusive by way of its uh, understanding of who the customer is, what its needs are, what are, its what are the customer's changing uh, circumstances, and how best to make uh, the right offerings to them. Um, so that that is the link into what we see as a fairer market and as a as a more uh, sort of competitive sort of reaping the benefits of competition. There is a cross sectoral aspect to vulnerability, anyway, and we've been quite mindful of this uh, angle. I think I think there's there's a huge opportunity for for regulated for the regulators to come together, encouraging the market. Uh, and differentiating between, you know, the lemons and peaches in the market, to, to quote Akerlof. Um I think that I think that's where we we need to get better at what we've been doing so far. So I think we've we've done a, a pretty decent job of highlighting and being transparent. Our, our retail monitoring function is quite good, and it has improved. 
So I think that that's where the regulator needs to step step up a bit more, and and sort of give a much more clearer view of um, of how how the sector as a whole is performing on key metrics. Uh, and it's not just about you know numbers; it's about qualitative information. So you know we've got a whole new function of consumer research. I mean we've we have, we've had that for a few years, but you know we're doing more interesting things now. We're planning to do things like mystery shopping and so on. Um, of, and the third leg to it all for me is also uh, quite robust compliance monitoring, and sort of looking at sort of more detailed, uh, more detailed activities of of companies to see well are are our rules and policies really being translated truly both in terms of its spirit and the letter of the rule, and are there things that need further changing? So I think that that's that that is all what sits behind that statement of we want. We want to see a smarter, fairer, um, and more competitive. Uh, we have a smarter, fairer, competitive vision for this market. Is there anything else that you'd like to add on any of the things that we've spoken about so far? I think, I mean, I'd probably just emphasize three points. Uh, I want to say that a, the market, ever since we've done our strategy, uh, there has been, uh, I mean, I, I can definitely say there's more and more emphasis on on improving outcomes for vulnerable consumers. But I feel that this is an extremely important time in in sort of the journey that we are on, um, because of you know the remedies that have come in after the CMA's investigation. You know the why the political interest in this area and our own work and emphasis on sort of moving to principles-based regulation. I think uh, this is a really crucial opportunity to emphasize culture change in companies. I so often meet companies who who seem to be saying the right things, but you you can see that there you know there there is need for a culture change and sort of really emphasizing on on vulnerability issues at the highest levels, you know, at, at board level for instance. So I think um, that's an area of challenge for for the regulator, for for companies, for think tanks, for you know, for university academics to focus on as what what are the drivers of culture change. Um, uh, you know, it's not just creating new rules and and seeing that they're followed. It's also about really living and breathing uh, what sits behind those rules. So I think that that that's an area for us to to think more about. In the second half of this podcast, we'll focus on a scheme that targets a particular group of vulnerable energy consumers those in fuel poverty. Fuel poverty is a term used in government policy to define a particular type of vulnerability, the inability to heat a home to a temperature needed to be healthy due to a combination of energy prices, household income and the energy efficiency of the house. I'm Sylvia Kerst, I work for Hubbub. Hubbub is an environmental charity set up to um, engage mainstream audiences with sustainability and um, I'm a project lead here. And um, I've been running different environmental projects um, and we kind of got into fueling connections um, due to energy use and reducing energy use um, and specifically focusing on uh, vulnerable households. I'm not a project leader of uh, fueling connections. People struggling to pay the bills would often find it very difficult to know what kind of support is available for them. And even uh, the people giving support found it difficult to be aware of all schemes locally and nationally um, because it changes quite a bit and because of the um, short character of many schemes. Um, We found the most pressing issues with households which had changed circumstances 
Um, so people maybe with a divorce, um, a sudden illness or a loss of a job. Um, becoming part of this um, new situation, not knowing where to turn for help. Um, and yeah, just where the people who've been in, um, well, uh, living on a low income for, long, for a long period of time, they kind of knew where to go. They had their own coping mechanisms. But especially people would change circumstances. Like we would be in a street with lovely privately owned houses. Um, it all looks nice. You would come into one door. Um, and you've met these people, and it would just be chaos um, because something had changed. Also, uh, we found that amongst the households, um, many households in fuel poverty are really socially isolated um, and would rather venture online than going outside of the house. So that was quite interesting. Depending on the type of household, um, kind of young families, if they had kids, it was all about the kids, like feeding them, getting them to school. That was definitely the first priority. If the household didn't have any kids, um, then actually the internet bills were prioritised over the energy bills. Um, so these people would uh, be on Facebook a lot or have a smartphone. Um, yeah, also um, we saw that the most issues were in privately rented places, um, as we know from many, many data sets. Um, and also that there was a bit of a of a disconnect um, sometimes between people providing support and the people looking for support, since um, people in fuel poverty don't know what fuel poverty is, they don't see themselves as such. Um, yeah, they don't even know the term. So, MP had a box of flyers on her desk with um, providers of support, um, like looking for people and promoting the scheme. Um, but yeah, using terms as fuel poverty and terms which do not resonate with the households themselves. Um, so we did that research piece and then um, we kind of came up with a new model to support these households and tested that um, initially in three areas. We call it fueling connections um, and basically what, what it does is giving tips and advice and saving money in the home and also um, connecting households to available support. So communicating what kind of schemes and support is available for households and doing so via an online community. Um, we chose Facebook to do that since um, meeting people were rather already at, basically. And we ran it in uh, three constituencies where we organized a roundtable event together with the local MP um, bringing all local stakeholders together, which sometimes is what we also found in the research that often they didn't know um, about like about one one another and the kind of support they offered. And even in one case, there were two organisations around the table who were both doing work in the same street for the same target audience and didn't know about it about each other um, because there's not really local coordination. Um, yeah, and there we could the local coordinator, train this person. So there's local people running an online community um, with also the aim that it becomes a peer-to-peer -peer support network. So people can help each other and some people are quite good at it, others are not. Um, and they start res like responding to each other and helping each other out. Um, also with the aim to reduce their sense of isolation and increase the knowledge of what support is available for them with the peer-to-peer -peer support network, basically, 
Um, the, the strength of that is that people realise that they're not alone. Next, we'll hear from a researcher investigating fuel poverty and advice giving. My name is Danielle Butler. I am a, a PhD student um, at the Sustainable Housing and Unit based at the University of Salford. Um, my doctoral research is interested in energy vulnerability and um, various different contexts in which energy advice takes place specifically. Um, alongside my studies, I've spent a number of years working for citizens of which is really where that interest comes from. My interests are kind of around the energy vulnerability and the, and the issues around that stems from people's lived experience, the everyday experiences of difficulties in their own home. I mean, probably one of the most common of those is, is mould and damp. And still now when I'm having conversations with people in the advice setting, um, often that's the way into a conversation that's meaningful about issues related to fuel poverty. So very much kind of what Sylvia was saying around, you know, uh, there's almost more than one conversation going on at different levels um, and we need to kind of find a way to better connect those conversations so that the outcomes or so the conversations themselves are more meaningful and that we can better support and better target that support. Um, so uh, I did a, a master's uh, by did some um, work with people living locally in Salford um, kind of wanting to better understand a specific group so I was interested in looking at young adults uh, who weren't students and who were living independently um, and to understand how they were talking to advice services but also how they were talking to one another um, so kind of similar um, on a much smaller scale than the work that Hubbub did um, but but quite similar in its sort of aims and objectives to, to what Sylvia was talking about um, and more recently the PhD that I'm working on is um, now I guess coming from some of the findings within that master's research uh, just touch on one actually for example so um sylvia mentioned around uh, an idea of disconnection and, and what sort of needs or um vulnerabilities or issues were prioritized and certainly households where there were children households where the adults who i was speaking to were parents their priorities were clothes for their children food on the table getting them to school you know the, the idea of energy was bound up in so many other sort of difficulties in day-to-day -day life particularly around what constitutes or what makes effective advice information and tips um, and kind of within a lot of the events I've been going to there is a lot of emphasis on things needing to be accurate if it's not accurate it's not 100% right and in line with policy then it's not going to do the job and, and our priority should be making sure that advisors on the front line are delivering nothing but accurate advice and how do we do that when the landscape is ever-changing whereas on a far lesser scale, there were some conversations starting to come out of certain events where actually we need to understand the value in trust, which again is something that Sylvia had noted. And on that ability of those organisations to get through the front door, to be where the people are having the conversation. So like online communities, how, how do we get to those spaces and have meaningful conversations? Um, so yeah, bringing those sorts of things together, that kind of the research design that I'm working on at the moment uh, wants to look at what what is energy advice and information um, beyond that sort of formal organisation um, like Citizens Advice, like many others that exist around the country. Um, but beyond that, what does that look like in sort of mundane everything? So um, there's been some work in psychology that's looked at mundane advice given between uh, adult adult daughters and their mothers and, and how they sort of provide 
advice and support to one another um, and, and what that might look like. And this kind of comes from, again, sort of the everyday experience of citizens advice because, um, for example, uh, an individual has had their benefits stopped. Often we might talk to them about the provision of a, a food parcel um, or even a fuel and often the response will be, well, you know, John, who lives a couple doors down, will cook me dinner for a few nights and my mum will help me do my washing for the next couple of weeks. So we know that those energy vulnerability are there, but there are informal uh, actors building up this sort of community or this network. Um, and these are just the stories kind of I've become aware of from being in a formal advice organisation. So um I'm going to take a leap and, uh, you know, assume that those conversations are probably happening on a much wider scale than the ones that we're just picking up um, within within the organisation itself. Um, and that kind of led me to consider what other spaces people might be talking about energy problems. Sylvia, what I really wanted to ask you following up on what Danielle's just said is to draw out more around the difference between formal and informal advice and how that plays through to conversations about who should be giving that advice and that it should be at all points, quote unquote, accurate. It's a really interesting question, Danielle. The research you're doing sounds so interesting. I'm really glad you're doing that. Um, and it's also really interesting to hear that um, yeah, that we have some some same findings, and that the internet is so important. Um, I think there's there's experts which give formal advice, and um, but there's way more people you get your advice from. And as a person, um, like looking at my own situation, for example, um, I don't really make that difference as much between what is formal, this is an expert, and, and this is just someone talking to me. You get influenced by both. Um, so should you create spaces which um, are about informal advice, but maintained or um, kind of coordinated by someone who could give formal advice and who is an expert? So you could um, basically uh, rectify things or... or or add comments and, and notes and footmarks. <laughs> um, yeah, I wonder about that now. Yeah, and I mean, so it, it is it definitely there has to be a blurred line because uh, I kind of straddle both sides. You know, I might speak to my friends or my relatives uh, about, you know, an energy matter in a very informal, in, in a very different way to the way in which I might speak to uh, a services are coming into citizens' advice or you know, any organisation, um, and I think really we, we just need to be having conversations about what is um, is is the outcome from that advice interaction. The is the only outcome to provide that person with a block of information and knowledge to kind of move that knowledge from me to you, and then assume that that's resolved, that that's dealt with? Or is it a case of that actually, you know, those sorts of issues with with, with maybe trust or with um, knowing that there's resources out there to access information? You know, I'm certainly not advocating that we have um, people without training kind of going around saying this is, this is the way that this should be done. But those conversations in themselves are really, really important, you know, to be quite stereotypical about it. We, you know, we often know that maybe older people... Uh, who have far greater issues and challenges in terms of social isolation 
they may be having conversations with some people and they may not be the formally trained advisors. How do we start looking at, at the formal and the informal and how can those sorts of two areas and spaces come together or at least complement each other to, to get a positive outcome that isn't just, well, now I know how to switch my energy bill. It's um, maybe having some confidence or knowing where to turn to in the community. Mm. Yeah, and um, like building on that, it might be that the informal advice is um, is realizing that you can switch energy suppliers, and that's a good thing to do. Um, mm -hmm. Or um, realizing that you might be eligible for benefits, not that person telling you what kind of benefits that is, how you can apply for it, and um, telling you the whole process, but basically telling you about the possibility and um, you then knowing where to turn for. Um, because there's people who have the expert advice and can help you with that, but they might not be in your first circle. So it's then, is, is informal advice maybe just making sure that um, you're helped and you know where to turn, and then the formal advice is where people will end up um, if they're looking for the help. So there's something kind of coming across here that we haven't really talked about that's come across really clear to me from this conversation and others. Um, I'm not quite sure how to articulate it as a member of the Fuel Poverty Researchers Network. And it's that using the term fuel poverty seems to, and this is coming out in my current research, can actually be a barrier to that transfer from the formal to the informal. Because with the formal, there is a policy frame and expectation that you use this phrase um, and that's how you access these networks. That's how you access um, these resources, these really important resources. Institutionally, you need to be able to some to get institutional, national or local support. You need to be able to articulate that you're targeting effectively this group called the fuel poor, which is only recognisable if you're in fuel poverty um, policy, which is incredibly different and very distinct from people's lives experience. Um, so I just really wanted to hear um, your individual perspectives on uh, me saying I think it might be an active barrier and for you to disagree or agree as much as you like. Um, but it just that's what's coming out of my research at the moment from a politics perspective um, is that it might actually be quite harmful in the policy space uh, to be continuing to talk about fuel poverty when it's so distant from people's lived experience. In no way should we be underestimating sort of the value of being able to determine if somebody um, is in a particular situation and in terms of policy, you know, the, the large scale approaches that are needed in policy to, uh, to direct funds or to direct initiatives or share best practice. We do need some level of measurement. We also need those statistics and those figures and those mechanisms of measuring it to be able to present a national or, or even larger scale picture of the problem and to make that case politically or within the media. You know, that is not being underestimated at all. I, I have to say I completely agree with you that it is a barrier and not just for the fuel poor or for people having difficulties with their energy. Um, because uh, research has kind of, these conversations are in there in, in research at the moment around this idea of it being just a binary term, you know, you're either fuel poor or you're not fuel poor. Um, and so when we talk about things like energy vulnerability, um, so that's, you know, kind of a, a, a 
an increasingly used term. Um, it allows for that little bit more flexibility and fluidity that I, I would argue is needed. Um, so a really easy way in which I try and talk about this, um, is around uh, you might address somebody's problems in a privately rented property with the damp and mould or the meat and working properly and then their tenancy is ended after six months and they move to another property and they are within the same situation again or worse or you know similar um it's a case of people's lives being transitional you know they may develop an illness an illness may go away they may have another child their partner may leave them so it's not as clear as being fuel poor or not and that that in terms of talking about it as a barrier i'd say that's where it becomes really difficult and sticky um people aren't one thing or the other it's really much the same as advice. It's never really just formal or informal, um, and it, it depends case by case. Yeah. So, Sylvia, would you like to respond to that? Um, I don't think I'm going to make it much simpler. Um, I agree that fuel poverty is not a term which resonates with households. Um, so, if we look at it as as a policy term, it's all fine, so good, um, but not having the expectation that. Um, um, yeah, for more households will know what it means or not at all, like, feel, feel appeal to respond to it. Um, I totally agree with Daniela that it's, um, that it's a situational thing, which is a difficulty. Another difficulty is uh, whatever term you'd use, that these people don't feel like they're in fuel poverty. They feel like they're in poverty. Um, they are struggling to pay bills, and energy is one of those. Um, so yes, in policy, it's very specifically about this one topic. Um, I would argue, um, but um, I would hope that there can be more collaboration between support organisations and um, within government and within policy, realising that um, it's part of a bigger issue. In this podcast, we've heard from two very different organisations responding to the challenges of affordable energy to households. If you're interested in fuel poverty or energy consumers who could be considered to be vulnerable, why not listen to the Energy Justice podcast? These podcasts were made with the assistance of students on the Humanities Foundation Year Media Technologies module, namely Anna Wormald, Poppy Frost, Evie Howarth and Simone Chalkley. They were recorded in the studio in the Humanities Media Centre at UEA by Stephen Bennett, lecturer in Humanities, in the Interdisciplinary Institute for the Humanities at the University of East Anglia in Norwich.